Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode 42 of Daffy's Roundtable. On today's episode, we step away from reptiles to learn about another niche hobby, ants. I met Zachary from Canada Ant Colony at one of the expos a few months ago and went down a rabbit hole of looking up ants after seeing his booth. So I reached out to him and he agreed to come on the show and teach us about ants. We talk all about different species of ants in the hobby, how to set up a formicarium for ants, what they eat, and the interesting relationships between different species of ants. But before we do that, allow me to give a huge shout out and thank you to Exoterra for sponsoring this podcast and making this episode possible. Exoterra makes quality products for our pet reptiles to make them feel at home. Okay, let's get into the ant talk with Zachary of Canada Ant Colony. Hello. Hi there. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. And you? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for coming on. I'm excited to talk ants. All right, me too. <laughs> awesome. All right. So why don't we start right from the top? Um, how did you how did you get into the ant hobby originally? Or how did you first start keeping ants? Okay, this is actually kind of a fun story. Awesome. But so my parents, they come from like a very, very rural part of China. And then by rural, I mean like I think there were tigers in like the 1970s or something, like in the area. Wow. So, <clears throat> and my mom is really, really, really afraid of bugs. Um, and then just because it was such a rural area, that was kind of like a big part of her life for a long time. Just because like, you know, if you're afraid of bugs and there's literally bugs like every fucking step. Yeah. So when I was born, she kind of made it a thing that it's like, I'm not, I'm going to make sure that my kid, he's not going to be afraid of bugs. So like other kids, um, they're getting like bedtime stories, like, uh, like the three little pigs. And then my mom, she pulls up an encyclopedia flips to like the the insect section it's like exposure therapy for her and like in advance for me and then so for me kind of i've been into insects my entire life just because it's something that i've always kind of grown up with right um and i've worked with a lot of different types of insects so for a couple of years i did mantids um and like butterflies moths and then so ants is kind of the one i'm i've more settled on just because I want to say unlike most of the insect hobbies, it's something that can last really long. It's very longitudinal, longitudinal. So I can have like an ant colony and it'll just go for 15 years. And the other thing is, is something I can consistently see. Um, so I know like tarantulas um, just cause I do keep some, um, but it's like, like I'll see them, but. Not frequently. <laughs> yeah. I have a couple of tarantulas myself. I know exactly what you mean. Um, I don't know. And then so kind of basically just by trial and error, I got into ants. And then I don't know. I, I, I think it's so much cooler than a lot of other taxages because they have a variety of behavior instead of just like a variety of like how they look or like even, even like temperament. Like for example, like ants have like social parasites. This is one of my favorite parts of like ant keeping. But it's like you'll have species that they the only way they start colonies is by looking for colonies of other species taking over and it's like they'll co <clears throat> they'll collaborate like the queens will collaborate in groups so they'll basically like go in as an a team into trios kill the like the resident queen and then kind of like systematically brainwash like all the all the existing workers to raise her brood and then kind of that's how you get those colonies to spread out. 
That is super fascinating. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say your story on how you got into bugs and, and ants is also super fascinating. Uh, it's it, Every story is unique, but it's usually wrapped around the same kind of thing of how people got into animals. That one is very unique. I've never heard anything like it. So that's that's very interesting. And then also that, that story you just told us is very interesting. So uh, like you said, the queen brainwashes the soldiers and essentially the soldiers from a different species become like kind of her workers. Yeah. That is so cool. Okay, I'm sure we'll get more into we'll that. We'll get to that later. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure we'll get more into that. But uh, so, okay, so that's how you started keeping ants. How did you go from just a hobbyist keeping ants to um, uh, to starting the business? Okay, so honestly, for this one, it's just me not having money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I just didn't have the money to like afford any of the equipment. Um, and then so what's nice about ants is that, um like to some extent like a lot of it is like stuff that's wild caught it's it's something called a nuptial flight so basically for most species um they'll kind of synchronize like sending virgin queens males out every year or so i, I say every year or so but i've been noticing that there's actually like multi-year patterns where they'll have like a big year smaller year, bigger smaller it, it depends on a lot of different factors interesting um but so i kind of got more proficient at collecting ants so I'd always have like a surplus of whatever species in my area and it started out with me just like trading to other friends and at some point I'd realized that I kind of had like a network where everyone always had like an excess of like some sort of like species and then basically to like fund like ant equipment so like nests and stuff um it, it started out small just like I want to say the same way that like most like reptile breeders start, for example, right? And then kind of slowly built where it's like, okay, and then now because I'm the one selling, people come to me with ants and then kind of takes off. Yeah, 100%. Once you become the guy with the thing, everybody wants to come to you for it and or give you um, species to get yeah. involved in and that kind of thing. That That's awesome. Um, so you pointed out there that the nuptial flights and that you're collecting the queens. Is that generally most of what you're doing or have you gotten to the stage where you're kind of importing species from outside of Canada? Okay, so right now I'm going to say most native species in Canada. Um, they're going to be like 80, 90% well collected. Um, <clears throat> and that's just because it's the conditions that are needed to actually like, make the ants produce elates is so like difficult. It, it's, I want to say the closest thing like in the pet hobby to it is like spawning corals. So okay. the thing is each colony, they'll make like a couple hundred, a couple thousand. Some of them will make like tens of thousands of queens at a time. Um, and they, the idea is that like less than 1% will survive. So it's not really a huge issue on the environment. Um, I am looking at like a lot of captive breeding right now. So we have a couple species on the site that are like sometimes almost like exclusively captive bred. Um, but I would say it's it's like a new enough like methodology where it's something that like people like or like research labs will come ask questions about it just because no one knows anything about it. Wow. In terms of imports, I import a lot of species that are like native to Canada um, okay. or established in Canada, but might be found in like more like either like protected areas or <clears throat> would be just like 
more scarce. Like for example, we have a species of carpenter ant in Canada. It's bright orange. They they look amazing. But the thing is, in Canada, they only exist on like Point Pele. So it's like like a ten kilometer stretch. And then it's all protected land. But they are super abundant down in Florida, for example. So then we've kind of established the permits to import those in larger quantities, right? Um, doesn't damage the environment and it's like legal. So why not? Yeah, no, that, that's super interesting. Um, okay. So I've seen, like, I've seen you guys at, at, at one of the, um, uh, one of the reptile expos and stuff like that. And, uh, there was a lot of, uh, I don't know what the word, like test tubes or little glass tubes with ants in them. Um, so I guess that's kind of the way like you guys retail ants, uh, why that way? And like, what's the use of it? Gotcha. So the way ants start colonies that you have a, in most cases, you have a queen and she kind of like basically digs her little hidey hole. It's called a claustral chamber. And um, it's a really small space. It's the idea is that like the conditions there are relatively stable. Um, and then so we've just found through um, and, and this is how like ants are kept like in like lab research labs as well. Um, but that a test tube is a really like cheap and really effective way of like keeping ants through that first stage right it's easy to control in this case it's like a test tube water cotton so then you can always ensure that the humidity stays at like the exact same level um you can like put it in like like a next to a space you can maintain the temperature perfectly well um it's really just an easy way to get ants through the initial couple months interesting interesting okay so the two things you mentioned there um, that's always like, as a reptile keeper, those are very important, you know, reptile, um, uh, humidity and temperature. Um, and I'm sure it differs based on where the ants are from and all of that, but is there a general kind of guide on like, how warm are you keeping them? How humid do they need it? That kind of thing. Um, so I'm going to say in terms of how warm they are, like the vast majority of ants, it's like the hotter it is, the better it is. So we're talking like usually around 25, 27, 28 Celsius. Um, obviously you have some species from like the desert parts of Canada that are going to be looking at like, they'll be fine at 40 degrees Celsius, but we tend to find like a good middle ground for most things around 27. In terms of humidity, humidity I find it's not as important for ants. You have to make sure that they do have a source of water inside the nest at all times. Um, but for the most part, um, like it's, it, it'll depend on the material of the nest. So for example, like, um, like plaster, concrete, hydrostone nests, like that absorb water or either like will evaporate water through a small dish in the bottom. Like they'll always be at like an okay humidity as long as like there is water there. Um, and that's just because like ants will move like um they're young their eggs like the ideal humidity so like ideally you're looking at like a gradient and then they'll kind of regulate everything by themselves and i want to say one of the easier parts about ants is that for the most part if they want specific conditions you just have to put the conditions there and they'll move to whatever is like best for them interesting so if you were if it was a big enough size setup and you made one side super humid, one side a little bit drier. They'll just they'll go towards the the side that they prefer. Yeah, and more specifically, it'll be like they'll have like they'll they'll split up all the brood. They'll split up the workers, the queen, based on the individual like preferences of that like 
stage. So for example, let's say eggs have to be more humid. You'll see like in the humid area, it's all eggs. Huh. And then kind of as they progress, you'll see that like, let's say like the, the ant pupae, let's say they don't need as humid conditions. In the dry area, you'll find a lot more pupae. Um, and even things like, like trash disposal. So if they have a lot of garbage, if they put it in a humid area, it starts molding. So you'll see that like almost always wherever they dispose of garbage is like the driest area of the entire setup. Interesting. It's almost like they know if they make it wet, it'll mold. Yeah. And so they kind of, that's, that's very interesting. So what, what, what is garbage in terms of um, like ants? What's garbage to them? <laughs> well, there's poop. Um, okay. There's, I want to say for the most part, it's like the exoskeletons of stuff they eat. So almost all ants will take like feeder insects so you'll find like a pile of like fruit fly wings or like like hollowed out pieces of cricket um or for like species that eat seeds you'll find just like a, a pile of husks in the corner right and that's relatively standard i don't think or yeah i i don't notice any significant like it like debris other than that sometimes they'll for example like pull in cotton they'll poop on the cotton and they'll just move the cotton out but like that's just poop still so yeah it's interesting so they actually kind of form an area in the enclosure that's kind of their waste area so it's almost yeah. like they're litter trains no basically and then the really fun part is that and this is especially for big colonies but like ants individually are like pretty dumb but if you have like a thousand of them because they all like the way they behave is kind of like through feedback loop, feedback loops. So let's say an ant does a thing and then like another ant will copy it. And then it'll, and then they'll kind of establish like behaviors in that sense. So then one thing that I do in some of the larger colonies, I'll put a little container inside like a Petri dish or something. I'll put some of their garbage inside the dish. And then, so they'll kind of have this ingrained where it's like, okay, so I'll put whatever garbage I have into like the designated garbage place and they already see like just a pile of garbage in that little dish they'll continue putting garbage into that dish and so it's like training them to use like a little garbage can and then all i have to do is like remove most of the garbage from the dish every once in a while and then they'll just keep using it that is super interesting i had no idea that's essentially potty training like i said like that's makes it so much easier to clean but it's like they they they're kind of just pre-trained from like birth i want to say almost yeah 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 like okay yeah i guess yeah we're not potty training them they're already i guess they're just a clean species yeah well some of them um will have issues where they'll just poop a lot and then it'll like dirty the nest but it's nothing that like seems to like negatively impact health um in the cases where they do that awesome um, so you mentioned feeder insects. Uh, is that majority of what you're feeding them? And do you give it to them? Like, will you give them a live cricket or do you pre-kill it first? Okay. Uh, feeder insects, I want to say, so ants basically need two things. They need like a source of like carbohydrates and then they need a source of protein. There's like obviously a lot of like little micronutrients, but typically they're getting that with the feeder insects already. So normally I'm feeding them uh, when they're small colonies, live fruit flies. And then as they get larger, I normally switch to crickets and mealworms. Um, and then some species, roaches. So uh, how do I explain this? So it, basically, the 
the idea of whether you're supposed to feed them like live stuff or dead stuff, it's really just a matter of colony size. So let's say it's like a massive colony, they'll be able to take something down. But especially for smaller colonies, we're typically going for like anything pre-killed. And that's just like, normally they'll, they're less averse to taking risks. If let's say they have five workers versus if they say if they have like 500, just because it's like each worker is individually more valuable and they don't have the manpower necessarily to take down big, bigger things. So I know I know some people with like really large colonies. Um, at some point, they just start using like like waste meats. Like they'll throw in like duck necks or something. Wow. But yeah, no, it, it's they 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 see they'll. They'll kill something if they have the ability to kill it. Basically. Yeah, like you said, if the colony is big enough, that's that's super interesting. And then, okay, so that's the protein portion. Um, what is the um, carbohydrate portion? Yeah, so for most species, we're just talking about sugars, right? So, like we have, uh, there's actually like just like on the market diets that like consist of like different sugars or like minerals that ants need. Um, in the wild, we're looking at like tree sap um nectar um and then a lot of ants will like farm aphids and then they produce like a a sugar solution basically um in return to for the ants um for seed speed for seed eating species or for a lot of like grain eating species they can just take that from the seeds but yeah i want to say for the most part it's usually from sugars that's super interesting okay so um, I have a bunch more questions for you about this kind of stuff. But before that, you just said ants farm aphids. Yeah. I would love if you could explain that. Yeah. So you know what aphids are, right? They're like... 100%, yeah. Like a line of like little um, like sap-sucking plants. Sorry, sap-sucking bugs that like line like the branches of plants. And so the thing is, aphids are just generally easy to kill for a lot of different things. Like, like a lot of beetles, a lot of like... A little animals like love to eat aphids they're an easy target um and then so what happens is that aphids basically will attract ants um and the way they do this is because when they drink sap they produce the extra like sugar in like a little concentrated solution just out like a gland in the back um and ants love the concentrated sugar so they'll protect the aphids in return to like have basically like exclusive access to that sugar and so it's even at the point where a lot of the more specialized species like during their nuptial flights a queen will come out with an aphid in her mouth fly away and then kind of breed the aphids as the colony grows and then you'll have like especially for like root aphids so like the more subterranean species where ants are like taking over the entire life cycle where they'll like pick the eggs um to some extent they'll even they'll move um aphids to like like greener pastures basically um and if i remember correctly this one i'm not sure but there is some degree of cap of like selective breeding to my knowledge wow wow that is super interesting i like yeah it makes you think like something so smart in such a tiny little ant that's that's crazy um so as as a dart frog keeper aphids would be a great source of food and ants would be a great source of food. So it's always a thought of like, would I be able to breed and colonize them for food? I, I don't know if it'll ever actually get to the point where it's sustainable and the colonies can be big enough. But it's interesting that sort of in the same setup, you could do both ants and aphids and, and kind of get like, a, uh, yeah, I don't know, just, just brainstorming out loud here. That's very interesting. 
No, it's something I've been looking into. And the issue is mainly that a lot of the times, like, they just get too good at it. Where, like, whatever plant you put in as the food source gets, like, completely drained. Um, yeah. Um, and, and so there has to be some sort of, like, outside control or they need, like, a lot of plants. But it's definitely something that's doable. Yeah. Are you doing – do you keep any aphids at all? Um, I don't, but it's something that I've been, like, continually, like, testing out for a couple of years. Okay. And, again, it's just getting enough plants to continually feed the aphids without, like, having them drain it completely. Okay, cool. Well, if you ever manage to successfully do it, uh, put me on the wait list. I'd like some aphids as well. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So we talked about you bringing in, um, you know, you're catching the, the the queens and you're making little colonies and everything. How how do you decide what species are the right species? Like what makes an ant a good pet ant? What makes an ant a good pet ant? This is really, really just based on preference. Okay. Um, in from my experience, I find that most beginners like prefer ants with big colonies, um, ants that are like relatively faster growing, um, and a lot of like ants that are aggressive, just because it's easier to feed them, right? Good feeding response. I think that's like a good thing in any species. Yeah, fun but to watch too. Yeah, but at the same time, it's like there's a lot of people that will will prefer like larger species of ants which happens to be a trade-off for like their growth speed basically, right? Um, and then there's some people who just want to keep everything like very low budget, want to keep everything really small. And then so there's species of ants that won't surpass like a couple hundred workers. Um, so we're talking about cryptic species that kind of work just as like a nice desk pet. Um, so yeah, I, I would say it's really per person specific. I'm personally, I personally prefer ants with like weirder social behaviors. So like the parasites we talked about earlier, just because I think at some point, it's like when you've kept everything, it's like, those are the things that stick. hundred percent. No, that's, that's super interesting. Uh, so yeah. So earlier you mentioned you can keep them for a long time and you like colonies for 15 plus years. And then now you also just said um, it kind of caps out at a hundred workers or whatever. So is there a lifespan for colonies and does it differ between different species and then the colonies or maybe this is like a second follow-up question uh, the colonies that cap out at 100 what happens when they get to the 100 okay so basically yeah the size of the colonies will vary dramatically between species some of them like cap out even at just like a dozen um wow. and then obviously you have species that go up to like a couple hundred thousand basically um and you're asking about like what happens when they cap out, right? Hmm. So when they cap out, typically they just will continue producing workers at like the same rate that they die. Um, okay. And in a lot of cases, at that point, they'll start producing new queens, uh, new male, new queens and and males, um, where they've reached like reproductive maturity, basically. Um, in terms of how long the colonies last. I've noticed that a lot of the species that produce like smaller colonies will typically not last as long, right? They'll produce a lot more queens, a lot more males. Um, and we're typically talking about like maybe three years for like a lot of the lifespans of these species. For colonies like harvester ants that will like produce huge colonies that are relatively big. Um, we're talking, I think like there are like wild colonies that have survived like easily like 40 something years wow in most cases after the queen dies the colony just like kind of fizzles out 
afterwards, right? And we're talking about typically in the span of like a year or so, there are some species which will actually continuously produce new queens as they're growing. And in some cases, interbreed or like a lot of times it's like incestuous, but you'll basically have like everlasting immortal colonies as long as they have good care. Awesome. So once a queen dies, they will replace her with a different queen. For some species, for, for most species, species, no. Oh, okay. And and those species that don't, you said they eventually just started disperse or just die off. They just slowly die off. In a lot of cases, uh, this is something weird. And this is specific to ants, bees, and wasps. But the males um, are have like one set of chromosomes, and the females have two sets of chromosomes. So even un so unfertilized eggs become males, and so for some species. In the last like year or so of the colony, let's say the queens died, you know, some of them, those just the workers will start laying eggs because there's isn't like the queen around to basically suppress that. And those will grow up to be males, fly off kind of as like a last resort, like to spread those genetics. Interesting. And and males will be able to join other colonies. Males mate like once and then die. OK. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then and for some of these species, like the, the male female ratio um, for reproductives is like 200 to one. So a lot of males them, to one female. Yeah. So a lot of them don't mate and die. So. Okay. Very, very interesting. <laughs> the, I, I had no idea there was so much to do with uh, to do with that. So that's, that's super interesting. Okay. Um, so, okay. So how, from like when you have that, that queen in a test tube, um, and I'm sure, again, you mentioned earlier that it varies and some colonies grow super fast. But in general, how fast till you have a colony big enough that you need to take it out of the test tube and, and like, you know, start putting in different things? Okay. From my experience, it's usually around like six months to a year before you can take them out. Um, and it's usually closer to like two years or even three years before you have to take them out. Wow. And that's just because like ants can fit in a really tight space. So for like a test tube like that, I could fit easily like a 300 worker colony. Now, would they do better in a bigger setup? Yes. Um, will it be a pain in the ass to feed them? Yes. But they will be, but, but they'll be fine in there. Usually we recommend moving them out by around like the first year. Awesome. Okay. And then, so to transition from that, when you do move them out, I believe, and I got this word off your website. I don't know what it means, so maybe you can like explain it to us. You move them out into something called a formicarium, yeah. formicarium, or formicarium. So formicarium is basically just like an ant setup. Like you would call it like an aquarium. Okay. Like a tank, but for fish, or for like a water setup, terrarium, and it's like a formicarium is just like whatever you would move the ants in. Sometimes that'll just be like a terrarium. Sometimes it'll be like a very ant specific setup. So like, for example, we sell a lot of like carved or molded like ant nests where you can just move them straight in. And they'll use, they'll use whatever you give them, right? Like I've, I've seen like, so I've, I've seen those carved ones on your website, which by the way, they look incredible. Um, it's, it's almost like to, to, to sort of describe it to the people listening. It's almost like, um, a bunch of hollow caves that are connected and then like a viewing glass on the outside right sort of thing most of them are like that yeah yeah so do you actually see them in the tunnels and in the holes and and i know you mentioned earlier it's a like answer generally something you see very frequently 
Um, do you just see them on top or do you see them using like all of it? You'll see them using all of it and more, you'll see, actually you'll see most of the colony inside. So typically I want to say like maybe at most 10% of the colony forages at any given time. So the interesting thing is usually like when you're going outside and you see ants like on the sidewalk or like in the forest or whatever or not, you're seeing like a very small percentage of the colony. And then so the purpose of being able to see the inside, having that viewing glass, like what would effectively be like underground in the real world is that you get to see most of the behavior that you wouldn't otherwise like ever have the chance to see. Okay, and from there, so you have one, but I've also seen like connectors and different tubes and stuff like that. So you can really expand and make it a bunch of different setups and, and stuff, right? No, for sure. And especially with, I want to say, uh, some of a lot of the species we have natively in Canada, even will like pretty easily get to like, like five digits worth of workers, right? And then at that point, like you won't be able to fit everything in one nest. Unless, you, you will, yeah, okay. Yeah, un unless you like purposely like cut down their food or cut down the heat, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you, have, and you, can, you can expand it infinitely, kind of. Okay. Yeah, because I I remember speaking to a guy at the at an expo once, um, and I'm not sure uh, I'm not sure if he had gotten his answer from you or, or whatever the case was, but he told me that he had tubes uh, lined on his ceiling from one uh, from one farm to another, and he'd see the ants like walk above his head and whatnot. And I I found that like incredible. Um, so it's really cool that you can kind of expand as much as you want. Um, as long as they're big, as, as long as there's enough ants to maintain that behavior, we'll do it. Cool. Okay. Um, so, okay. So maybe we can touch on some of those, um, behaviors you mentioned earlier. So, you know, one was, uh, breeding aphids. The other one was mind washing or, uh, yeah, uh, brainwashing an entire group of soldiers. What are some other really interesting behaviors that you see out of your ants? Okay. Well, I'm going to continue going down like the social parasite rabbit hole for a bit. Yeah, please do. <laughs> so so we, we, we heard about basically these temporary parasites. What they do, they'll just take over a colony, brainwash, brainwash like the workers there, and then kind of replace them one by one with her own workers. So then a lot of species, the next step after that is like, like basically slave raiders. So we're talking like you'll have a colony um, that will have like a specific range of like slave species that they can attack and then so over time and sometimes you might see this where you'll see a long column of ants um and maybe they're all carrying like brood or like something in their mouth and a lot of the times they'll steal the brood of other species of ants to bring back raises their own so this is basically the case where the workers at that point can't really take care of their own brood. They've like specialized so much for like, um, like being parasites that they are they can they can basically only do colony defense and like attacking other things. So they depend on a constant supply of slaves basically to be able to maintain any sort of colony function. And then what's interesting is that so all these um, like parasitized species. And I'm gonna say that most ants in the Northern Hemisphere are either a parasite or are a species that is parasitized. But so they'll have like countermeasures basically. So you'll even see like, like the brood, the larvae, they don't, like they'll learn to recognize the parasites like eggs, for example, and then they'll actively like eat those eggs to kind of a sabotage of the colony. So the hard, so parasites are kind of a more advanced for most people are a little bit more advanced and the reason is because like the initially the workers are actively working against the queen right 
for example, if they notice, if they if they realize that um, like she's not the correct species, basically, you'll have cases where like they'll just straight up kill her. You have cases where like they might think they might realize that she's the correct species or they might think she's the correct species. But then the workers come out really weird and then they'll call like the initial workers for like a couple of generations until kind of like one or two slip through. And then so you have the counter countermeasure. We will have workers where the initial workers of the parasite will look very similar to the host workers. So let's say it's like a red species that parasitizes on a black species. You'll have the first workers, they come out, they'll basically be completely black. And then they're kind of there to like calm down the, the host workers to kind of keep them in line with everyone else. Very interesting. Okay. So uh, first of all, you said like a, a number of like slavery species or species that can be used as, as like sort of like slaves, or I don't know if that's the right way of saying it, but um, are those generally always different ant species or could it be different species of bugs or just different species in general? It's different. It's different ant species. Different ant species. Okay. And, and, and so as a keeper, I assume you are keeping some parasitic species. Yeah. How do you, how do you go about like bringing them the other species to use or how do you mix colonies or is there a way to even do it in captivity? Gotcha. So in most cases I'm keeping temporary parasites. So like I, you can keep slave species, like slaving species in captivity. Um, but it's a bit more of a pain in the ass because you have to have a continuous supply of like slaves basically. Right. So in a lot of these cases, I just find like a parasite queen um, and I'll introduce like either the brood of, I'll, I'll, I'll introduce like slave brood or like slave workers one by one, um, typically in the fridge because it's an environment where everyone like they, their metabolisms are a lot slower. They can't kill each other as fast. Um, and then kind of if I leave them in for like a while, I'll like feed them a little bit, but slowly the colony sense will like become a little bit more similar. It'll interfuse a little bit. And then typically by the end, when you take the queens out, they'll more or less get along with the workers. And then mm -hmm. so at that point, then the queen starts laying eggs, whatnot. And it's a lot higher success rate in captivity than in, out in the wild, because one of the reasons parasite species exist is because normally you're giving a when a queen flies out she has like two months worth of food on her just like food that for her and then food for the initial set of workers parasite species they can straight up go into a colony and they skip the entire first stage and so you'll see they'll create like 10 times more queens they're all starving um and so yeah so you'll find a lot more so you'll find, find a lot more parasite queens but typically they'll have like a much lower success rate in the wild for that reason that's super interesting. Okay. Um, so are there any other examples that, that you want, maybe want to give us of, of like um, parasitism or other social behaviors that are interesting? Yeah. Um, there's a species of ant called uh, the thief ant. Uh, the scientific name is Solenopsis molesta. So these are very small ants. And basically, they specialize in captivity. They'll eat anything. But in the wild, they specialize in like stealing other ants' brood for food. So then they're really small and they have a really potent toxin. So they'll basically create sub tunnels between all the chambers of the ants where they can sneak through and like take things out without the other ants noticing. Uh, you have um, something called a 
it's called a vampire ant. Um, these are native to Canada and in actually most of the world, I think, has a couple species. But they're, they're really primitive where they can't really eat for themselves. And then so, and, and then they eat a lot of protein. So most, the ones in Canada, they're centipede specialists. So you see workers, they'll go around and hunt centipedes specifically. They'll bring it back to the nest or give it to the larvae. And the thing is they don't have like the adequate mouth parts to feed for themselves. So they actually have to like non-lethally like puncture the larvae and then drink the larvae's blood. Wow. I'm not sure how much that, that's making sense. Like, so the adult workers have to drink the larvae's blood or, or are they drinking the centipede's blood? They drink the larvae's blood and then the larvae, um, like our centipede specialists. So the adults have to hunt centipedes, feed it to the larvae and then drain the larvae's blood. It's, it's a basically to continue. Interesting. So the, the main purpose of doing that is actually to feed the adults, not to feed the larvae. Or larvae. Well, it's, it's both. Because they won't drain all of it, right? And will, yeah, so will the larvae die if, if the larvae they... don't die? Um, and I'm presuming that just because it's such like a, it's such an evolved trait where it's been in the line for so long. Um, but I will also add that the species generally it doesn't have like as good survival rates as most other species in terms of like how the brood does, which is not surprising. Um, but generally it's not lethal. That's super interesting. Okay. Uh, so one thing you also mentioned a couple of minutes ago was, uh, putting them in the fridge and mm -hmm. like slowing down their metabolism. Is this said some, is this something that you like, do you have to brewmate ants? Is this something that you have to do yearly? Do they, cause I mean, if they're native species, they're coming from a cold climate. Mm -hmm. So I guess they're doing something over winter. Uh, like how do you, how do you deal with that? So that's really like, that's also super species dependent. A lot of right. species are noticed even the ones natively, they only need to kind of like go through diapause the first year. And it's kind of like seed stratification where like they need the cult to start, but once they're going, they're going. There's a certain subset of species and especially carpenter ants that will automatically go into hibernation once they've reached a certain point, right? Like once they reach a certain point of timeout, maybe like a certain number of generations, they'll go, I'm out. And then regardless so of temperature, they'll shut down regardless of temperature. And you have to drop the temperature for them. Otherwise, they tend to like fare relatively poorly. Um, there's another group that will diapause based on the temperatures. So let's say it gets cold or there's not that much food. All right, I'm out. Okay. Um, those species I find are the most convenient just because you can kind of put them into hibernation anytime, anytime. So let's say I'm going on vacation for like three months and I'm not going to be here to here to feed the ants. I'll put them into a hibernative state. I can stick them in the fridge and they won't really need any specific care. So like I'll be good for a couple months basically. That's interesting. What temperature are you putting them at when you're putting them in the fridge and are you feeding them at all during the, that time or not really? For most species, I'm not feeding them anything. Um, some, some weird ones like vampire ants, they'll have to be fed continuously. I don't know how they really survive in the wild. Um, and normally I'm putting them around five to 10 degrees Celsius. So that's like the temperature of a fridge or a wine cooler. Um, in the wild, they can go really, really, really low. So typically um, what they do is that they'll start replacing their blood with antifreeze. I think it's like 
I think glycerin is the is the chemical. Um, and then so some of the species I can just put in the garage over the winter and then like they'll drop to like negative 40 degrees Celsius and they'll survive that perfectly fine. Um, and this is especially species that would like nest in wood above ground where it's less insulated. But I've found ants in the wild in the winter or in the spring that are completely encased in ice. And then once they thaw out, they're good. Wow. Okay, cool, cool. Um, okay, so uh, back to the enclosures. Is there a difference between a formicarium and an outworld? Or is it just two different names for the same thing? All right. So generally, an outworld is like a foraging area for the ants. So a lot of formicaria will have an outworld attached. Some of them will not. Um, as a general rule, you do need an outworld. Um, but a lot of cases, in a lot of cases, it's already included into the nest, if that makes sense. Yeah, 100%. So when we're seeing ants, like you said earlier, when you see ants outside and most of the colonies inside, we're seeing the ants that are considerably in the outworld. Exactly. Awesome. Okay. And then in a lot of those like nature documentaries, they, when they take you into the ant nest, it's, you see a bunch of different chambers and like eggs and different ants doing different things in, in different sections. How much of that do you actually see in the foracarium? you'll see almost all of it. Um, and in fact, like in like mo the way most of those things are filmed is that they'll have, they'll just use a formicarium. And then let's say they'll paint the walls brown so it looks like it's dirt. And then no they'll just way. straight up. And yeah, actually we have some of our nests are like started out as like film setups and then they kind of evolved over time to become just like more like for keeping ants generally that's very very cool i had i had no I, I don't know why i didn't think of the like they're faking those like faking those shots in formicariums or anything that's that's super interesting so before we get into the other topic that we want to discuss hint hint roaches hint hint um final ant question for you when i was younger i had this little little acrylic thing with blue gel in it mm -hmm. And that was sold to me as a little ant world. And I would collect ants from the outside. I'm sure I never collected any queens or anything, but like little workers and I throw them in and never went anywhere. It never worked. Mm -hmm. What's your opinion on those? Uh, do you know what do you, have you yeah, ever seen? Yeah, one yeah. yeah. What's your opinion on them? Do they actually work or are they just basically garbage sold to children? They're basically garbage sold to children. Okay. It's, it, it's like, like, it's like the equivalent of like a goldfish bowl. Okay. <laughs> and it's like, like they'll live in them sometimes for like a couple of weeks um, in rare cases for like a month or so, but usually they die out pretty quickly. And that's for various reasons. Like, like in, in some cases, the, 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 the gel starts to mold. Um, and like the entire thing is going to mold. So it's like the ants can't really do anything to control it. Um, the idea of a gel farm to begin with is kind of like the ants will eat the tunneling material and the thing is then basically it's like you have to dig to eat and then like obviously it's not like nutritious for them um be, to to encourage them to dig more basically yeah and then uh, eventually when they dig and eat the whole thing where do you go well, usually they don't get to dig the whole thing just because there's not enough nutrients to continue like digging, right? Right. Um, so generally, it's not something that I encourage. I 
yeah, there's really no reason to get one in my opinion. I well, so based on my experiences as a child, I 100% agree. <laughs> Don't waste your money. <laughs> the reason they exist is because um, they, they they started out as kind of this like short-term experimentation, like a three-day experiment to observe the tunneling behavior in space. Oh, cool. Okay. So like NASA uses these, but NASA used them for like three days and then released everything after or released or euthanized everything afterwards. Um, but they're not meant to keep anything long term. Okay, awesome. Very, very cool. Um, all right. So the other topic that we want to talk about is uh, discoid roaches, because uh, you guys were the first people to bring them into Canada. Mm -hmm. You were the ones to get all the permits done and all of that. So if you don't mind, can you give us the story of the discoid roaches? coming into Canada. I'm sure it like took a lot of work. I'm sure it was, it was quite a hassle. So um, yeah, as much of the story as you're able to share, it would be awesome. Yeah. So basically it started off with me importing ants um, where I was kind of slowly getting used to like the process, at, le at least for at least the permits involved for ants. Right. Um, and I'm going to say it's a, it's a pain in the ass because for 99% of cases, they'll only allow native species. Um, and I, and in some cases they'll allow like greenhouse pests, right? So, like uh, Suriname roach, Suriname roaches. I'm not as sure because they seem to have changed their minds on that one, but I know Australian roaches, they're hundred percent. Okay. Um, I know theoretically banana roaches should be okay, but the issue with that is all the records in Canada are ID'd to the genus, but not the species. So those, so all that data is like completely null and void in their eyes. Um, but kind of, so basically as I worked, I, I got to understand a lot of like the requirements that like the CFI imposes on whether or not they'll approve a species for importation or not. Um, and then one of those happened to be a, like a database of insects that they have that have been found or are described as like established in some capacity in Canada. And basically I went through every single insect order and then I realized, wait a sec, discoid roaches, they're on the list. And then so I like put in the application and they said yes. And step two was like getting someone in the US to get a permit for the roaches and then figuring out that line over. And um, so, you, so you're saying that, sorry to interrupt there, but you're saying that discoid roaches had actually already been established to a certain capacity in Canada prior to bringing them in? That's what the paperwork, that, that, that's what the paperwork says. Um, and I'm, I can't, I can't personally verify the records just cause they, I think the record was in like Sudbury or something and it looked like it was like an indoors like setting. Um, and I know there's a couple records in Nova Scotia, just either as part of like food shipments or as part of like greenhouse settings where they like seem to have been established for like a little bit of time. Awesome. Okay. Um, so that part was relative, was comparatively relatively easy. Oh, wow. Okay. That was gets harder than that. <laughs> yeah. Because then I, because then I had to find someone from the States I was willing to like ship them in. Right. And the States, they also require a separate permit. The States, they need like a, like an import export permit with, uh, the U S fish and wildlife. And then in addition, it's like there's state restrictions in terms of like which States can ship to which States can ship what. So luckily the state thing we got over pretty easily because it seems to be something that they like deregulated like a couple of years ago. Um, but we did have, but, but we did run to, into a considerably in, into considerable issues in terms of 
finding a courier that was willing to ship roaches internationally. Um, and there's another thing where they will require an inspection at specific border ports. So in this case, I had to find, uh, I, I think there was a couple. There's one for Detroit. Uh, there's one for Niagara Falls. There's one for Montreal. There's one for Vancouver. And there's like two other ones. But they have to go through a specific border control. And you have to schedule an inspection with the border like several days in advance. Um, so just because all the Discord breeders are basically in Florida, we had someone in Florida. We had to get a partner. In this case, it was in Detroit to bring them over. Um, and then separately, because of COVID, we needed a separate importer that lived in Canada on the Canadian border next to the correct city to like manually move them over after the inspection and then ship them to us. Wow. So the first batch went really poorly. And then basically what happened is that um, at the like the U.S. border, like middle person, um, a huge percentage of the discoid side. I want to say like more than 90%. Wow. And then so that's one of the reasons for like the current pricing is just because like that's a lot of the money that we have to recover um, just because like 10,000 discoids dying in addition to all the importation fees added together was a lot of money. Um, so yeah, so we switched that around a couple, we, we switched that around a couple times and we actually found like a separate, a, a separate like postal service box basically um, with USPS to hold the discoids for us while we had a, while we had someone on the Canada side schedule the inspection with the US, with, with um, the US border control. And then beyond that, there was a separate declaration document filed for live insects. And then there's a separate customs declaration filed for the package and then bringing it in and then having it as like a commercial shipment. Um, so the clearance was that with, for, so the clearance for that was probably like, like six different pieces of paperwork, including, not including like the actual permits involved. And then obviously getting them from like, in this case, um, like Dover, Florida, all the way to like Detroit, Michigan, and then into Windsor, Ontario, and then to us. And that seemed, honestly, that seemed to be the 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 fastest way with the least stops to do it the least stops was still like five stops that's, yeah. that's super interesting um so uh and, and are you still planning to bring more in or now that you have your calling established it's all going to be captive breeding from here um so the thing is i really don't like the current prices we're maintaining just because they're really really high um and i would say unreasonably high for like discoid roaches um so next, um, but the but the thing is, part of that is a to recover the cost, and the other part is because we only have like a we, we only have so many. So next year, um, and I've been speaking to the uh, like our our partners in the U.S. for a while. Um, we're going to try to lower the prices relatively, not super dramatically, but at least like to a point where you can actually buy the roaches for feeders instead of just for breeding. Um, and then that would probably start around June just because like the weather isn't safe otherwise, right? So it seems like I can only ship discoids in from 
um, like May through September, and outside of those months, they will die. Yeah. Like there is heat, there is climate control, obviously, but just because of the number of like destinations and stops it has to make in between, it doesn't seem to be an option to just you know get them through. For sure, if you set the whatever the climate control in the box to a certain like the there's the 21 packs which keeps everything at 21 degrees Celsius, but then every stop the outside temperature is different. So yeah, it, that hundred percent makes sense. Um, and also it makes sense that the prices, uh, like it, it, I, I don't generally know how much they're selling for in the U S or whatever, but it makes sense that they're a little more pricey based on all of that. And based on you're selling them as breeding colonies, not just come buy a couple of feed your reptiles. Right. Yeah. And the other reason is because this is just from my experience, but normally the people in the States that would agree to sell for super cheap, are not the people that would be willing to put in the paperwork or, or the effort to like put in like three months worth of processing paperwork, right? So we are buying from like a more expensive, like a little bit of a premium source. Um, but part of that is just because of how much work they were willing to put in on their end to help like get their permits through. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's very cool. How, um, how, long, how long was it from when you first had the idea to when you first had the roaches in your house? eight months yeah okay nice. i want to see and then eight months from having the idea to the roaches in the house and then i would say closer to maybe i, I might have my timeline a bit, little bit messed up but closer to 10 months for like the uh, for like an actual sizable number of discoids here there's some other things that are exciting but we don't normally like talk about them too much yeah so one other thing we have and this is done like I have eggs at home. This is just praying that they like hatch out correctly. Okay. Um, a locust, a, a locust substitute. So like bird grasshoppers from uh, that don't need that don't need dive pods that get this big. Um, that can be fed basically in the same way as locusts. We have them in. Um, we have the per we have the paperwork all set up. The issue is like we basically got in like fifty of them just because they're 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 hard to obtain in the states. And so now we have a couple hundred eggs and it's just a matter of whether or not they hatch. So they'll be available, um, best case scenario, I'm gonna say end of 2023, worst case end of 2024. Um, curly winged flies. So this is like flightless house flies. We can, we basically have the paperwork for, um, it's just having the money to do it. Um, for sure. And then there are some like basically designer roaches. So like um, American roaches, like the, the venom um, variety, we're planning to get more of those. And also um, so certain springtail species, like there's a metallic blue one that is being cultured by one of our partners in the US. We have the paperwork for those, they'll, you might see them next year too. So there's a lot of stuff going simultaneously. That's awesome. So you guys are planning to expand it to other feeders and other stuff. Uh, the The, I think you said designer roaches. Yeah. Will those be more, will those be another option of feeders or are those going to be more like pet roaches kind of thing? Those are more pet roaches. And that the only reason for that is just because like they're expensive. Theoretically, like they will grow at the same speed as American roaches. So we could use them as feeders, but like, why would you type? Yeah. yeah if, if you already have a cheaper alternative, might as well. It, yeah. It, it's like, like, you can, you can use like fancy guppies as feeders and they'll breed pretty well, but. Like there's better uses. I guess. Better. Yeah, for sure. 
So if anyone listening to this stream like has ever seen like a banana roach in like a greenhouse or something, like if you can collect that roach and then like send it into a government collection or send it into a university collection, once we have like a couple records, it'll be something that can be brought in. I'm a hundred percent sure that banana roaches fit the criteria. We have 14 records of like Panchlora species, which is like the genus. And then almost all of, and then Panchloronivia, so the banana roach is the main, is the most common like invader for or like greenhouse pest of that species. But the thing is just because all the records are identified to a genus level and not to a species level, we don't have adequate data. Once we do, they can be brought in pretty quickly. So you're okay. So you're actually kind of looking for for more more things to bring in, and you're you're so okay. So let me let me get that. So if you can prove that there's records of it existing in Canada, in multiple different scenarios and situations, and is there supposedly like a colony size that's required, or just even just one? It's it's not. I want to say it's more like it's more holistic than that. But it's like if there are established populations in Canada, and you can say, hey, look. Like this roach, I found this in like these six locations. This one's in BC, like there are two here in Ontario. And like they seem to be from, let's say like, let's say it's photos of like, like nymphs, adults and whatnot. And they seem to be continuously reproducing. They haven't fucked that many things up yet. Yeah. And in a lot of cases for those scenarios, the CFI will be like, all right, you could bring them in. Uh, so the, the, the CFI's biggest worry is something becoming invasive, right? Yeah, and then basically the idea is almost everyone on the team is like a botanist, so they don't know that much about bugs. Yeah, that makes sense. And as a general rule, um, if it's here, if it's already here and it's not fucking things up, it'll it it it's a green card basically, which is stupid. But <laughs> yeah, well, I was gonna say there's a, definitely a better way of doing that. Like like yeah, go ahead. Basically, think about it from like my perspective. It's like well, the more invasive something is, the more likely it is to be found here to begin with. Right. And then if that's the criteria you're going on, on whether or not to bring them in, it's like you're favoring more invasive stuff. And then like, so German roaches, you can bring them in, like no permit required. You can bring American roaches, no permit required. Like any of those like big house pests, just because they've established so much. Yeah. Well, okay. So, but would any of those species survive the freeze that we get here in Canada? Would you, like German roaches? American yeah, German roaches? roaches, house roaches, the banana roaches, uh, or American roaches, whatever you said. Would any of them, if, if they were to get outside of a house? Definitely not. Okay, so the fear is really just infesting like one building or one well, area. The hope is that they infest one building, and then, the, and then their fear is that they'll like fuck up agriculture specifically. Okay, yeah. So, for example, like I, I get asked this all the time, like, can I bring in leaf cutter ants? And the answer is no. It's a pretty hard no because the reason is, I can a hundred percent prove that they can't survive here. And and right now I'm working with like a couple of museums with like a couple of research labs, um, and we're trying to figure out like what the process is to, like, basically put out papers that would prove that they can't they can establish here. Like for something like leaf cutter ants, like they defoliate trees, whether or not they can survive here, they're going to be fucking paranoid, right? Yeah, 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 it makes sense. They'll they'll be like w within the time frame that they have, they'll do a lot of damage. No, but 
like actually know, but oh, actually no, but that's what they're that assuming. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. You know, hundred percent. I'm sure that they won't. But yeah. 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 It makes sense. Very. Very cool. Well, first of all, I want to be. I want to say thank you for uh, for bringing them in. You've made all. Of, I don't know how it is for for other niches or other hobbies, but for reptile keepers, once these things become more common, um, you've done everybody in Canada a huge favor. I <laughs> tell you that. Um, and second of all, thank you very much for uh, that's that's about all the questions I have for you today. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank you for doing this. Um, I I've always been fascinated in ants, but I think you just leveled it up by like a hundred. I had no idea about any of like I, truly, truly. I'm very, very fascinated right now. I might have to message you later on and get myself a little coffee started or something because those, those social behaviors, like you said, are, it's it's so fascinating to watch. Um, but anyway, I'm rambling. Uh, so Zachary, thank you very much once again for coming on. Can you let everybody know where they can find you and where they can find uh, Canada Ant Colony? Yeah, so you can find me um, on my website, canada-ant-colony.com. Um, there, there's a Facebook group and a Discord server if you want to join. Um, we have Instagram, Facebook, basically everything except for YouTube, which everyone tells me I should do, but I don't have the time to yet. But Yeah. 100%. I'll have all those links in the show notes. Go check them out. I second what everyone's saying about starting a YouTube channel. That was so much great info and it was just like an hour. So imagine what you could do with unlimited amount of time on a channel. Um, whatever you have the time, definitely consider it. Uh, but yeah, so once again, thank you very much, guys. Go check out Canada Ant Colony. Once again, all the links are in the description. Um, I am Daffy's Reptiles on all social media platform platforms. <laughs> Daffy's Roundtable for the podcast. Thank you all for watching and we will see you on the next one.